If you have your Bibles, open it to 1 Corinthians, and if you need a Bible, raise your hand, and we will get you one. We're going to be starting a new series called Tough Love, and it's going to be going through the first epistle to the Corinthians. It's probably going to take us about four months, somewhere in there. I don't have all the studies yet, but we're going to spend some time in this book. The book of Corinthians is a powerful book because I believe it relates so well to where we are at in a society today. The things that were taking place in Corinth, we can see evidence of taking place today. Now, a little bit of history about Corinth. Corinth was a city that had been abandoned for about 200 years, but the Romans came and they reestablished it. And the reason they reestablished it is because it was a port city. It's this little spot right here. This whole gulf is the Gulf of Corinth. And what this little landmass did was connect these two landmasses to Turkey and to the other part of Greece. And then the waters that were here were places where the ships would come unload all their goods and then load them on the other side. It would save them from having to travel all the way around. And so it was a heavily populated place with a lot of commerce. A lot of money was going through Corinth. And it was kind of known for just being independent, having this free spirit. It was kind of the wild, wild west of the day. They did their own thing. And part of this was because there was no aristocracy. There was no royalty that lived there. There was no King Herod. There was no one who had that kind of title. And so to advance in Corinth, everyone was kind of on the same social level. If you would work hard, gotten the right business, you could make a lot of money in Corinth. And so that is exactly what happened. You had everyone from all over the place coming to this region to try and make money. And wherever you have a lot of money, you're also going to have a lot of indulgence. Indulgence in every kind of activity. And that's what took place. They indulged themselves in anything, and they did it to excess. You know, years ago, they were trying to make Las Vegas family-friendly. Anyone remember that? They would put the roller coasters and they had Circus Circus and they tried, but it didn't really work. Because as you would go walking through Las Vegas and looking at these amazing hotels, I mean, they're just unbelievable in the Bellagio fountains, you know, that are going through the music and you're seeing these things and you're like, oh my goodness, this is incredible. The amount of money that is in that city is just unbelievable. And as you're looking at this opulence and you're looking at the grandeur, some of the things that they've built, also there goes driving by the taxi with the strip club and the, you know, the girls, you know, with... Anyway, you know, these things are happening all in this one place. I remember when my son was younger, there was a billiard convention and I was working selling hardwood and I went to the billiard convention one of the clients I was selling to was supposed to go with me he couldn't go so I took my son with me he was only 13 at the time we went to medieval times and we did kind of looking at the buildings and when we'd walk through the buildings you know they have all these guys that are handing out these things to escorts you know 
But fortunately, they didn't handle, you know, if I'm, it's like your son was your safety guide, you know, it's like, he's got a kid with him, leave him alone, you know, it's like, don't, okay. But that wasn't so in Corinth. In Corinth, those kinds of things were commonplace. There was no holding back. In fact, there were 26 temples, they called them high temples, that worshipped 26 various gods. The biggest known, well, most well-known in that time was the temple for Aphrodite that had a thousand temple prostitutes that worked every day. And they would go out into the city. That was their form of worship. So when you think of worship, you know, don't think of, oh yeah, we're going to go to church and try and get holy. That had nothing to do with what they were doing. It was all about indulging the senses. You had the money, spend it, get whatever you want. And everything was available. And so it was very corrupt. It it contained a theater that had a seating capacity of 18,000 people. Huge. And so the theater, the arts, those kinds of things were very evident. They were something that was very popular. And and what happened is, is they became just known around the world, Corinth was known for this indulgence. In fact, one of the words that was used very much was taken from the idea of a Corinthian was someone who was a fornicator. That's what they gave a nickname to those who were part of those, that city. How would you like that for you? You're an uplander. Oh, well, you know what that is. You know, it's like, oh, gosh, you know, just because I live in this city, I'm known for this. And... With every city that has a culture that is like this one, when you start a church there, the church very often will emulate some of that culture. And so the church in Corinth had this wild spirit, this free spirit. We're free. And so they started telling Paul, who made you an apostle over us? Don't you know who we are? We're the Corinthians. Ta-da! We've got theaters. We've got everything we need. We've got wealth. We are the elite. We know God as well as you do. There's one excavation they found where they found 30 taverns in just a 100-foot stretch. That's a lot. Those are small taverns, but that's all they were, basically. And so those Corinthians, they were given to drink. They were given to the theater. They were given to sexual pleasure. Paul comes in and he starts establishing this church. He developed the church. He was there for 18 months. They came to know who Christ was, and as time went on, they kind of took this spirit of Corinth and brought it into the church and told Paul, we've got it from here. You've got to start it, but who made you an apostle over us? And so they started writing Paul some letters. Paul started writing letters back, and, and this is what we're going to get into here. This letter to the Corinthians is going to be a letter where Paul sets them straight. This isn't a letter that Paul gets that is saying, dear brothers and sisters, I just hope you do well. God bless. Love, Paul. 
he's going to take them to the mat and he's going to level them. So for the next four months, it's going to be like a spiritual UFC cage match, okay? So that's going to be sweet. Well, for some of you, some of you are going to take it on the chin and it's going to level you because Paul is coming and he's taking the gloves off and he's going to let them know where things are. As they would question Paul's authority as the apostle, they would say, you know, we didn't ask you to be an apostle over us. You know, they were a mess morally. There was incest involved with the church. When they would have communion, they would basically go and get hammered. They would get drunk. Those who were rich would indulge themselves in all kinds of food. They'd get drunk, and those who were slaves or poor would have nothing, and they wouldn't share. And so here they go to celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection, and they're just getting hammered. They're getting drunk, and they're like, sorry, you don't have it. You're a slave. Get over there, you know, behind the curtain. You know, I don't even want to see you in my peripheral. You know, just stay. And Paul's like, what is going on here? That's probably when they went to grape juice instead of wine, you know. They're just taking too many shots of wine, you know. That's not true. But anyway, uh, they were a mess. They had bad theology. They were living bad lives. And they had a bad elitist attitude. Now, can you fit any other culture like that? Anything come to mind? Well, ours does. You can find so much of that evident in our society and and that around the world. And so we see why this is such an important letter because as Paul talks to them, he's very much going to be talking to us. And, And as he starts to lay out this foundation, recognizing that he spent about 18 months there establishing the church only to have them cop an attitude with him, writing back and forth, trying to set things straight. Paul's going to set this letter down, and he he starts it off in this book to try and telegraph that. And you know what's interesting? Is when you think about all these things that Paul is going to lay into them, you think, oh man, there's going to be judgment, there's going to be such a hammering that goes on. Boy, they're just going to be left bleeding. But you know... Some of the most powerful truths and examples of what love are, are in this epistle. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13, what we know as the love chapter, is in this book to these people. And so let's read from verses 1 through 9 in 1 Corinthians and get a gist of how Paul is going to start preparing what he's going to say. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because your testimony, our testimony about Christ, was confirmed in you. Therefore, 
you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God who has called you into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ our Lord is faithful. You know, I, I read this and with what we know about these people, I think, are you kidding me? I mean, Paul says, I thank God for you always. And I'm thinking, I'd say, you children of Satan, what are you doing? You know, that'd be my attitude. I would be like, what get, I, I'd be flustered. I get flustered. You guys ever get flustered? You see someone's life and you know they're messing up. They're not doing right. What do you want to do? You want to straighten them out. And maybe it's the Italian in me. I don't know. But I, I want to take them to Luigi and I want to say, Luigi, fix them up. You know, and you want to put them up against the wall and say, hey, what's the matter with you? You know how to work right? You know, you know what to do, right? Slap them around. Okay, go on. Don't bother me. I just want to get in there and say, what's going on? But Paul doesn't start off that way. But what he starts doing is telegraphing what's going to happen. And, and so it's like as if you were playing ball. And, and you see, you know, the infield shifting over. And so you're the batter and you know, okay, he's going to try and pitch on one of the corners because I see the infield. You're kind of setting things up. Okay, if you're not a sports person, maybe you're an artist kind of person. You start, you know, a painting, and first you start sketching it out to see what it's going to be. There, it became all things to all men. So <laughs> you start figuring out what you're going to do. He's trying to lay the foundation so that they could understand what he's going to be saying to them. Because he's going to get heavy, but he doesn't start out heavy. And he starts off by telling them that he is an apostle, called to be an apostle by Christ Jesus. And I want you to look at that term, Christ Jesus, as it takes place in this, these verses. In verse 1, he says, Christ Jesus. Verse 2, Christ Jesus and Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, Christ Jesus. Verse 6, Christ, about Christ. Verse 7, Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, Jesus Christ our Lord. I wonder if there's a theme he's trying to get to here. He is trying to point them to the necessity, the dependency that they have to have on Christ. Because as soon as they start thinking, oh, we've got this together, we don't need you any longer. Well, you know what? You need Jesus. And you never stop needing Jesus. And I don't care how elite you are. I don't think how cool or niche you think you've got it together. You need Jesus Christ. And he is central to this introduction of what he's trying to present to them. And he says that he's called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Now, we don't have a lot of information about Sosthenes, but what Paul is trying to do is say, hey, listen, bud, I've been called by God. I got knocked off a donkey. He showed up to me. Talk to Sosthenes. I'm an apostle. You're questioning me? You can't. God shown up to you like that? No, I didn't think so. Thank you very much. Okay? It's in a matter of speaking. He's presenting this to them, saying, I was called to be an apostle by God. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called to be holy. You see, you have been called 
not to be cool, not to be artistic. You've been called to be holy. You have been called to be like Jesus Christ. And this is going to be a foundation that Paul is going to hit at time and time again, that there is a standard that we live by. And it's not something that changes with every culture that we're in. And just because you guys are Corinthians, yeah, you, you've been living this way. You guys got a lot of money. You can do what you want. No, you have been called to be holy. And then he lumps them in together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. You've been called to be holy just like the rest of the church. What's he doing? He's saying, you ain't special. You're not off on your own. You are a part of this whole thing. You and them are called to be holy, all those who belong to Jesus everywhere. Get in the group. Recognize that you are part of something bigger than just yourselves. And he's going to go into a lot of detail in this later on in this chapter. As some were of certain sects. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. But he's trying to bring them to this, again, foundational. You need Christ. You're connected to Christ. And he has called you to be something. He's called you to be holy. And you see, this is striking against this attitude that's pretty prevalent and has always been in different fractions of the church. You see it now in a lot of the emerging you know, doctrines that are being presented there, that it really doesn't matter your morality. It's your spirituality that matters. No, it does matter. Your character has always mattered to God and it will always matter. And you can't be going and sleeping around with the prostitutes and you can't be getting just bomb drunk and think it's okay. It's not okay. Because God has called you to be something. He's called you to be holy, set apart for Him. And so He's bringing this to them. In verse 3, it says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I don't know where you are at this morning, but maybe that's really what you need to hear this morning. Maybe you've been beaten up by the world. Maybe you are just in a place where you feel bombarded on. You just feel like you're, you're ready to throw in the towel. You're hanging on by a thread. Maybe you've been involved with some things and you're just ashamed and you're just kind of thinking, it's too late for me. I don't belong in church. You don't know who I am. You don't know what I've done. And maybe you just need to hear grace and peace. And grace and peace, what does grace look like? Well, it looks like Jesus. It looks like Jesus dying on a cross for our sin. It looks like Jesus giving up his life so that yours can be bought back. And maybe you just need to hear grace. God's mercy is on you. And again, knowing these people, knowing how far out there they were, Paul still presents to them before anything else, grace. When we are talking to people, people who profess to be Christ 
followers, but are living lives that don't show that. The first thing we need to do is present grace. And he says, grace and peace. You see, God's not out to get you. God is out to restore you. God is not out to smash you. God is not out to lay you to waste. He's out to try and bring you in. Now, he chastens those who he loves. And Paul's about to do a lot of that. But the first thing he wants them to know is there is grace that is able to cover you. In fact, it is said that there is no sin so deep that the grace of Christ is not deeper still. There is no place you can go that Jesus cannot reach you with his grace, with his mercy. And so they need to know this. It's something that he wants to put in their mind before he goes on and before he carries this idea and this reason with them. Verse 4, he says, I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. His grace. It wasn't because you Corinthians are just so suave. I don't even know if that's a word, but I think it's on the hair bottle. Um, <laughs> you, you Corinthians, you know, just have it all together. You really know your stuff, you guys. No wonder God loves you. You guys, you know, go on through. No. You see, he thanks God for them because of the grace that's given them in Jesus Christ. In other words, there's only one thing that's really good about you, and it's been given to you by Jesus. Coming back to that central point, it's about Jesus. And so it's not you guys are so cool, you're so niche. It's Jesus has given his grace to you, and I thank God for that. Because I can't thank God for the other junk that's going on all around you and that you're involved in, but I can thank God for the grace that is in you because of Jesus Christ. Again, a great perspective to have when we are talking with people, when we're dealing with people. I thank God for you, for the grace of Jesus Christ that's been given to you. And he exemplifies that to them. Again, grace looks like Jesus. It looks like what he has done for them. In verse 5, he goes on and he says, For in him, Jesus, you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge. And now, speaking and knowledge was a big part of their culture. We're going to see that especially in chapter 12 where he talks about these gifts, the gifts of tongues and the gift of knowledge. It was something that they boasted in. We're good at this. We're good in our our vocabulary, in our speaking, in our speaking to God. We're good in our knowledge and all the things that we have about God. We're good about those things. And he's saying, well, where did that come from? You've been enriched in every way in all your speaking, but by who? In him. It's because of him you've been enriched. Who? It's Jesus. You see, you've been enriched because of Jesus. You you can't be proud if it's a gift. You can't boast in something that someone else has given you as if you had it yourself. You've been enriched in these things because of Jesus. 
And, and we need to maintain this kind of thought and this kind of humility and not become people who are puffed up in how we see ourselves. Again, Paul's going to speak into this a lot more, but gosh, we, we can get so full of ourselves and how we do things. Our church is cool. Have you seen our logo? You know, our music, man, it rocks. I went to this other church. Oh, man, man, it'll kill you. Our pastor's the bomb. (laughs) (laughs) If there's anything been given to us, it's been given by Jesus Christ. We've been enriched by him, period. End of story. Where, Where can you boast? Jesus gave an example and said, when you've done everything that you should do, You should say, we're unprofitable servants. We're only doing what we're supposed to. You've been created to serve God. Why would you boast about something he has created and designed you to do? It's he who's enriched you. It's he who's given you the ability. It's he who's given you the the talent. And so Paul is thankful for them because Christ is enriching them in every way. Verse 6, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Again, going back to who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. Verse 7, he says, Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. You've got everything it takes. And now you have to have your eyes set on the revealing of Jesus Christ. You know, this is really an important process because as we wait for our Lord Jesus Christ, this is a theme that is going to come up again and again. In fact, verse 8, he says, He will keep you strong till the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The day of the Lord is, again, a theme that comes up when God is going to come and he's going to pronounce judgment and he's going to set things right. And if our mind and our focus is not on that coming of the Lord and and the eternal things, we just get caught up on the temporary things. They become our focus. And, And so we lose sight of the big picture and our focus is just on the little picture. We're focusing just on these small things. And we have everything that is necessary to keep our focus and to make our way on to the eternal things. We don't lack anything. You Corinthians, in all your messed up ways of thinking and living, you don't lack the ability. You're just not doing it. And you need to keep this right perspective. And as he tells them, you don't lack any spiritual gift. You're eagerly waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. I love that word eagerly. Where are our hearts? Are we eagerly waiting for the Lord to be revealed? Or does it not matter? Now, many of you know I I have a hard time with a lot of the focus on prophecy so much that it takes the focus off of Jesus and puts it on events. You guys all remember Y2K? You remember just the hubbub that went on about, I mean, and it came from everywhere, from churches you probably had a lot of respect for. 
And then it came and went. Here comes January 1st, 2001. Planes didn't fall out of the sky. My computer still worked. And there was no, oh, we were wrong. They just made money off of the books. And then they went on to the next event. And that bothers me. But at the same time, there is to be this eager expectation. Romans 8 tells us that we wait for the adoption of our bodies with groanings that can't be uttered. Although I utter some groanings now that I'm getting older. I eagerly wait for those things. There's times when it might be physical. There's times when it might be circumstantial, the things that are taking place around me, and I just cry within me, and I just say, Oh, God, I really can't wait for restoration. I really can't wait for these things and the, the hurt and the, the death and the sorrow that I see to be no more. I eagerly await those things. Is that a part of our focus? Or are we like the Corinthians, get it now? You can have it all. And it's all just about the material. Therefore, you do not lack anything. Verse 80 says, He will keep you strong till the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will keep you strong till the end. I, I did a wedding yesterday, and one of the verses I always do and share in closing a wedding is from Jude, verse 21, where Jude says, Keep yourselves in the love of God as you wait for the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him who is able to keep you from falling. Who's able to keep us from falling? Jesus. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will complete it. This promise that we have that God is going to be faithful to work in our lives and to do this sanctifying process. Oh, how I hold on to that. How I cling to that. And Paul just throws it out there. He's going to do it. He's going to keep you to that day. It's like there's no doubt in his mind. He's going to preserve you because why? Because Christ will. He will. He'll keep you. You see, Paul is not putting his stock on the Corinthians. He's putting his stock on Jesus. I had a marriage counseling recently, too, and as I was talking to this couple, you know, any couple that is dealing with difficulties with one another, one of the hard things to do is to trust that person if they've hurt you, if they've betrayed your trust, if they've lied to you, if they've done something that has wounded you. It's very hard to put trust in that person. And when you tell them, well, you need to forgive and you need to trust that things are going to get better, they say, well, you don't know what he's done. You don't know what she's done. You don't know how many times this has happened. And this idea that goes back in the memory banks, you just keep rewinding that, that time, that time, that time, and that time again. And what I shared with this couple is, you know what? You're not trusting him. You're not trusting her. You're trusting Jesus for them. 
and you have faith in Jesus that he is going to work in their hearts and deal with them. And you know what? You will not be put to shame if you trust in God, even if they blow it. I told a young man who lost his wife, who she was unfaithful to him, and he said, I was an idiot, I was a fool. All the things I did for her, and he was hurt, and he was devastated by this. And I remember sharing with him, you're not a fool if you've done what is right and you've trusted in God. The psalmist tells you, you will not be put ashamed if you did those things. You trust in God. God will take care of that person. And we have to do that with one another. And Paul did that with the Corinthians. He had confidence in Jesus for them. Because if you looked at them, there was nothing to be confident about. But Paul had confidence in a God who's able to do so much. You see, faith comes into play not when things are okay. It's when things are messed up. And Paul had faith in Jesus for these Corinthians. Even though they were messed up, Christ was still at work. And it doesn't matter how big the mess is. God is able to do a work. You have to have faith in that. You have to believe in that and you have to hold on to that. That's all you have to hold on to. Nothing else can hold you when everything else is falling apart. Jesus will stay strong and your faith is in him, not in the person. And Paul had faith in Jesus for these Corinthians that he was able to keep them. He was able to keep them strong till the end so that they would be blameless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when that day of judgment comes, I want to be blameless. And I'm not going to get there any other way than what Paul has repeated over and over and over again in these verses through Jesus Christ. It's because of Jesus Christ. That is grace that is given to you, that is given to me. And Paul is encouraging them in the things that are important, the things that will remain. Verse 9, he says, God who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. God is faithful. We have faith in God, not the people. There are four things that Paul knew about God that he presents in these verses. One, Paul knew the power of the cross that the victory over sin to forgive and to purify. He had confidence in the working of Christ and it being sufficient. That there was more mercy in Christ than there is in sin. There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in any one of us. God's mercy is able to reach and deal with the sin that is in all of us. And so he had confidence in the cross of Christ. Paul also knew that the resurrection of Jesus assured victory over sin and death. He's alive. He's proven this. We have evidence that he is who he said he was. And so, again, he knew that the resurrection of Jesus was proof that he had victory over the sin that they were in, in the pit that they were in. You see, it, it, it troubles me when I recognize how worried we get about 
our government, about our president, about our circumstances, and we want to, you know, oh man, our country is going to hell in a handbasket. Hey, it's been there for a while already, okay? You know, but you know what? Jesus has conquered death. Do you think this is too big for him? Kings and kingdoms, he raises up and he puts aside. You think a president is too much for him? You think a Congress? You think a Supreme Court justice? Oh, no. Did you see who they put in the Supreme Court? Oh, it's over now. And God's like, oh, yes, my hands are tied. I don't know what to do now. Look who they got in the court system. Oh, my gosh. And then we get so worried, we get so caught up, but we have a God who is alive. Paul is writing when the Romans are controlling, dictating, putting them in slavery, and you've got societies like this in Corinth that worship everything and anything under the sun that is just lewd and just out there. And Paul has confidence because Jesus has risen from the dead. He is strong enough to conquer sin and death in anybody's life, period. Do we believe that? Do we hold on to that? Again, it's a test of our faith. Paul also knew that the sanctifying role of the Holy Spirit, this regenerating work in us, not just verbally convicting, but trusting the Spirit. In other words, Paul's not telling you, you better straighten up, you better do this, I'm going to tell you what to do, and I have confidence that my words are going to change you. He had confidence that the Spirit was doing a work. He was convicting, he was going to keep, he was the one who was able to do this work. Not just his ability to tell them that's right and what's wrong. He's the one who brings victory and unification. He's the one who brings conviction. He's the one who keeps our hearts from growing cold. The Spirit of God is able to do those things, and Paul had this confidence and knew this about God, that the Holy Spirit was doing a sanctifying work in that group. And the last thing is Paul understood the character of God, that he is faithful and he is powerful. God is faithful. He will keep you. He will hold you. He will perfect you. He will see you through if you will just stay in his care. He will do the work that you cannot do. And Paul had confidence in God's character, that he was faithful and he was powerful. Recently, someone sent me a photo and posted it on Facebook. Don't you love it when they post photos of you on Facebook? You don't get to proof. And this was back in 1986. That was styling. And I was with about eight people or so. There were a couple people who weren't in the picture, but it was with a team that I, I took into China to smuggle Bibles in 1986. And, and I was thinking back on this, and I was thinking back about Pastor Xavier, who's the pastor at Calvary Chapel in Pasadena, and, and my time there when I was in my 20s, from my early 20s uh, to my late 20s, and the things he put me in charge of, like taking a group to China to smuggle Bibles. I looked at that and I just go, oh man, was he stupid or what? 
I remember there was, there was a time when I was in charge of the outreach, and so I'd put these series of concerts together at all these different schools, and I was going to these schools, these schools, these schools, and then we were going to have a big celebration concert at the end at one of the school auditoriums, and we did all this work, and I was handing out flyers, because then everything, there was no computers back then, if there were they were like huge, like that would be the computer, you know, that wall kind of a thing. And so everything was done, you know, you'd have to mimeographic or whatever it was. They had printers, but, or copy machines, yeah, that's what they had. But they weren't color, you know, so it was black and white, because color ones cost too much. Anyway, I was handing out all these flyers, thousands of flyers to all these different schools, getting ready for this big outreach that we spent thousands of dollars on. We get there, and I'm there early, get the sound, pay for a sound system. Man, the sound sounds cool. The band is rocking because we paid good money for them. Got the ushers all there waiting to get everyone lying in. This place can hold a 1,000 people. Four people showed up. Yeah. I felt this small. I remember Xavier and his, his manner and his voice, if you know him, he goes, hey man, what happened? <laughs> eh, I don't know, they didn't come. No one came, you know. And that's all he said, but you know what? I got to do another concert. He let me do it again. Would you? I wouldn't. <laughs> but he let me do it again. Did the same thing, went to all these different schools, and this time we rented a more expensive auditorium, the San Gabriel Civic Auditorium, and we had another two, actually we had three groups that were playing, and we had another sound system, another thousands of dollars. And the place was packed with people who didn't know Christ. 1,200 people, I think, were there who didn't know the Lord. And so you guys don't know how scared I get when I come to a place and it's empty. I have this haunting memory. Only four of you are going to show up on a Sunday. I want to be, oh, it happened again. But you see, he entrusted me, but he trusted God. He said, go ahead, do this. But he trusted God. He said, go ahead and take the lives of these 10 people and smuggle Bibles into China, even though you've never been to China, you don't know how to speak the language, and you don't know what you're doing. Go for it. You see, but we have confidence in the character of God, that God is faithful and he's powerful. And he can do in us what we can't do in ourselves, and he can do in others what you can't make them do. And so you, you've got a child who's wayward. You, you've got a friend, family member who's in a bad situation. You pray to God. You might not be able to change them, but, but you can have confidence that God is powerful and God is faithful. He's not going to stop caring. He's not going to stop working. And in the midst of this muck of this church in Corinth, Paul had confidence in Jesus. That should bring incredible hope to us wherever we are at. Whatever our situation, our despair, our calamity, our depravity, we should have confidence, grace, and peace through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Father, it's so easy for me to worry. It's so easy for me to try and fix things and to think that I have the words that will be able to make things better. But Lord, unless you build the house, those who labor, labor in vain. And unless you are doing a work, Lord, there is little we can do. But if you are doing the work, and you are, then we can have confidence in you. We can trust you for the things that we cannot change. We have hope in you that you will reach those who we cannot reach. That you will deliver us from the things that we cannot deliver ourselves from. That you are faithful, God that you will see us through. You are strong enough. You are loving enough. And Lord, I pray that we would hold on to this grace and this trust, this faith in you, that we would allow your peace to guard our hearts and minds, to strengthen our lives, to help us through just the dirt of this world, the difficulty of this world, the hardship of this world. Oh God, we need you. And help us to have confidence in you, Christ Jesus, in you, Jesus Christ, you, Jesus. Not in that job, not in that wife, not in that husband, not in that situation to change. Our trust is in you. So that whatever comes, we have a rock that we can anchor to. We have someone that we can go to. Lord, we want to build our lives on you. And Lord, we pray that we would trust others as well. Trust you for others as well. Have faith in you, God, to do those things in the lives of those who we love, those who we care about, those who we are concerned for. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through this book. May we be convicted. May we be encouraged. May we learn, Father, just how to build each other up in this most holy faith. For we do ask it in Jesus' name.